from American public media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Remembering Jim Crow. This is Deborah Amos. For much of the 20th century, African Americans in the South were barred from the voting booth, sent to the back of the bus, and walled off from many of the rights they deserved as American citizens. Segregation was legal, and the system was called Jim Crow. Well, my grandmother always told me, says, you have a certain place and stay in it. My grandfather was just as free of a white man he was a rattlesnake. At that time, you, you, you did something that you shouldn't do if you were black, they would hang you. And when they got ready to lynch him, they'd have a picnic. In the coming hour, Remembering Jim Crow, a special report from American Radio Works, the national documentary unit of American public media. First, the news. This is a special report from American Radio Works, Remembering Jim Crow. I'm Deborah Amos. It lasted about 80 years. It seized every state in the American South. People died because of it, went hungry because of it, lived in fear and misery because of it. They called it Jim Crow. White authorities in the South imposed a system of laws and social customs designed to deny African Americans their dignity and their rights as citizens. Alabama, all passenger stations in this state operated by any motor transportation company shall have separate waiting rooms or space and separate ticket windows for the white and colored races. North Carolina, school textbooks shall not be interchangeable between the white and colored schools, but shall continue to be used by the race first using them. Mississippi, the marriage of a white person with a Negro or mulatto or person who shall have one-eighth or more of Negro blood shall be unlawful and void. I'm Leon Litwack. I'm a professor of history at the University of California at Berkeley. The term Jim Crow first appeared in minstrelsy uh, in the early 19th century. Thomas Daddy Rice, who was a white minstrel, popularized the term. Uh, like so many, he used uh, burnt cork to blacken his face. He dressed himself in the garment of a, uh, of a beggar. He grinned, of course, broadly. And then he imitated the dancing and singing and demeanor generally ascribed to Negro character. I went down to the river, I didn't mean to stay, but there I see so many guys I couldn't get away. Wheel about and turn about and do just so. Every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow. And calling it uh, Jump Jim Crow, uh, he based the song on a routine he had seen performed in 1828 uh, by an elderly and crippled uh, Louisville stableman who belonged to a Mr. Crow. Well, the public north and south uh, responded with considerable enthusiasm to uh, Rice's caricature of uh, black life, and Jim Crow had entered the American vocabulary. The way they bake the whole cake, Virginia never tire. They put the dough up on their foot and stick them in the fire. Wheel about and turn about and do just so. Every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow. Jim Crow ruled the South well into the 1950s and 60s. Four generations of African Americans endured segregation, and race relations today are deeply marked by the experience. Correspondent Stephen Smith sifted through hundreds of recorded interviews with the last generation of black women and men who experienced and remember Jim Crow. 
In the early 1990s, dozens of graduate students at Duke University in North Carolina and other schools fanned out across the South with tape recorders, microphones, and curiosity. Their mission, to capture and preserve stories of 20th century segregation before the black men and women who survived Jim Crow passed away. Okay, my name is Charles Grattan. I was born July 16, 1932, Birmingham, Alabama. The students interviewed more than a thousand people and produced an extraordinary record of what African Americans endured under Jim Crow and how they fought back. Uh, I can remember my mother would have the occasion to send me to this grocery store I told you about that was approximately a mile away. She would give me instructions before I leave home and tell me, say, son, now, you pass any white people on your way, say, you get off the sidewalk, give them the sidewalk, you know, you move over, don't, don't challenge white people. If you went to town during the week, Monday through Friday, the sheriff, well, what are you doing up here? Well, you better get out of town. But on Saturday, you could stay all day. That was the day they said for the blacks. Why? I don't know. You could just stay up there all day long. If, if through the week, you weren't allowed up there. Because if they got paid on Friday, they'll come to town on Saturday uh-huh. and spend the money. That was their attitude. That's right. So black people would see, this was like a picnic to them. They would see their friends, their relatives, and make acquaintances and whatnot. And that's the reason Saturday was the day that they called Black People's Day. You couldn't go to eat in a restaurant. Uh, or if they served you at all, you went around to the to a window at the back of the place, right at the kitchen, you see. My grandfather was, he was just as free of a white man he was a rattlesnake because he'd been beaten and knocked about, you know, so much. He just, no matter what you say or do, let them have that way. Don't you say nothing back to them, no matter what they did. Well, my grandmother always told me, says, you have a certain place and stay in it. That was automatic. You didn't have to think about it. You knew it and you were taught it. Jim Crow uh, emerges in the 1890s in response to perceptions, uh, not altogether incorrect, uh, perceptions of a new generation of black Southerners born in freedom, uh, undisciplined by slavery, uh, unschooled in the old racial etiquette, and in response to fears that this generation could not be expected to stay in its place without some kind of legal coercion. It meant the ugly signs that you saw. You saw them at the railroad stations, you saw them at the bus stations, you saw them when you were traveling, it said Negroes to the rear, and it, it meant that room that was for white was always bigger, always had more seats, and was always better kept. So that was the crust of, of Jim Crowism, to prevent a group of citizens from being a part of what they rightfully should have been a part of. My name is Glinda Elizabeth Gilmore. I'm a professor of history at Yale University. Jim Crow was a word that white and black Southerners used for an elaborate system of white supremacy, a system that was established both through legislation in the courts and through custom 
It could mean anything from being unable to vote, to being segregated, to being lynched. It was part and parcel of a system of white supremacy, sort of like we use the word apartheid today as a code word to symbolize a certain kind of white supremacy. White men and women addresses Mr. and Mrs. You didn't address blacks that way. And don't make a mistake talking to a white person about a black person and call him Mr. I was talking about some black woman who was supervising schools with black folks. And I kept saying, Miss so-and-so. So finally the white woman stopped and said, Yeah, that woman you talk about, is she black or white? I said, she black, but don't miss her to me then. Let's call her by her first name. Don't ever miss a black person to me. I said, no ma'am. Jim Crow was a political movement that began with uh, state constitutions, for example, in Mississippi, writing in laws that took the right to vote, effectively took the right to vote away from black people. Basically, it's about power. Who has it? Who keeps it? Who uh, vies for it? In other words, a way had to be found to disfranchise blacks without risking any federal intervention or any legal challenges. Uh, whites reached a sort of consensus that is, since blacks were deemed to be ignorant and illiterate, they were unfit to vote. So most states then imposed property uh, and or literacy qualifications for voting, and then they went ahead and provided loopholes through which only white men could, could squeeze. They'd ask college professors with PhDs to write certain parts of the Constitution to prove that they could read and write. Long passages, and they would say, didn't put a period, didn't write straight on the line, anything like that. And of course, our registrars could hardly read and write themselves. Maurice Lucas, and the mayor of the town of Renova, Mississippi, located about 90 miles south of Memphis. There wasn't any opportunity. Unless you taught school or was a preacher, that was it. Only the, the domestic folks that had decent job with the white folks were, were, took care of uh, uh, the washing and the ironing for the white folks. The only ones had a, a decent place to stay, unless you own your own land or something. But that was it. Only people you saw with shirt and tie on through the week was a school teacher or preacher. <laughs> if the white folks caught you with a shirt and tie on, they won't know what the hell you was doing. Well, I worked all the week in the blazing sun. Lord, I worked all the week in the blazing sun. I'm Glenn Conrad. I'm director of the Center for Louisiana Studies at the University of uh, Louisiana at Lafayette. What happened after the Civil War is that the plantation system survived with the planter providing housing, foods, and things like this. I would best describe the African Americans during the Jim Crow era as being comparable to serfs. When my granddaddy was sharecropping, it was a system designed to keep you owing them. You never got free. Now, for instance, he's a man with 10 children. In December, he's told, and this goes for all of the plantations, 
he's told to come to the big house and have a settlement. Okay, the settlement would go like this. Well, John, you made 25 bales of cotton, and now you know that the old mule died. We had to have another mule. We got to pay for that. Now, John, your daughter took sick, and you called me and told me you had to take her to the doctor, and I had to call the doctor up, and you know it costs some money for that, so I take that out. Now, John, you're almost out of debt. You're not out of debt yet. My name is Thomas Christopher Columbus Chapman, Sr. I was born in Coffee County, Georgia. When we had gathered our crops and sold all the money crops, like tobacco, peanuts, and cotton, and my father told me that Saturday, said, well, boy, let's go up and settle up. So we went up to Mr. Thomas' house, went in the backyard as usual, and he came out on the back porch. And I had kept a record myself of everything that we got from that man that year. And I know we didn't owe him any money. So he came out on the porch and he started thumbing through his book. And finally he looked up at my father and said, John, you don't have any money coming, but you cleared your corn. Well, when he said that, I reached for my book and daddy stepped from my foot because he knew them crackers would kill you if you dispute that word, you know. And the first thing that went through my mind was, how could this man take all our money? And my father had six other children down there, raggedy, no money, winter was coming, and he gonna take it all. I ain't treated no better, Lord, than a mountain gold. Boss takes my crop and a pole tag takes my vote. We heard from Charles Grattan, Ann Pointer, Amelia Robinson, John Welch, Della Sullins, Kenneth Young, Maurice Lucas, and Thomas Chapman. For American Radio Works, I'm Stephen Smith. Coming up, the terror of lynching and how African Americans fought Jim Crow. And when they got ready to lynch him, they'd have a picnic, and hundreds of people would come. The wives would bring a picnic basket and bring her little children, and they would have the lynching. We got wind that uh, the whites were going to come and get him, so the bird got around. If you got guns, come down. We just have to have a showdown. I'm Deborah Amos. You're listening to Remembering Jim Crow, a special report from American Radio Works, the national documentary unit of American public media. Lord, I'm leaving here Cause I just can't stay I'm going where I can get more decent pay Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. This is a special report from American Radio Works, Remembering Jim Crow. I'm Deborah Amos. Louisiana, all circuses, shows, and tent exhibitions to which the attendance of more than one race is invited shall provide not less than two ticket offices and not less than two entrances. Mississippi, the prison warden shall see that the white convict shall have separate apartments for both eating and sleeping from the Negro convict. North Carolina, 
The state librarian is directed to fit up and maintain a separate place for the use of the colored people who may come to the library for the purpose of reading books or periodicals. In addition to repressive laws, Jim Crow dominated Southern custom and culture. Breaking those unwritten rules could be fatal for blacks. So African Americans invented ways to endure and resist Jim Crow. Here's correspondent Stephen Smith. There were a lot of rules to follow. Blacks visiting a white home were expected to use the back door. If a white employer was driving his black maid home, she had to sit in the back seat. Blacks were never supposed to contradict white people. And perhaps the most serious rule of all, under no circumstances could a black man show interest in a white woman. Some white man might feel that I don't like the way that Negro looks at my wife or that white woman and string him up to a tree, and when they got ready to lynch him, they'd have a picnic. They had told the people, we're going to have a lynching, and hundreds of people would come. The wives would bring a picnic basket and bring her little children, and they would have the lynching. That was Amelia Robinson of Tuskegee, Alabama. When whites committed crimes against blacks, it was common for the police and the courts to treat the matter lightly, if at all. Blacks, on the other hand, were constantly watched and often mistreated by the law. Price Davis remembers the harassment blacks faced just driving to the beach through Pageland, South Carolina. And you had this big-bellied sheriff that's going to sit on that square, their little square. And if you came through there and you were black, you were going to be stopped. And when you, once you got stopped, you were going to have to pay out that $15, which was a lot of money. You're going to pay something. We would watch three or four carloads of blacks go through, and we'd give them about five minutes or ten minutes to get in the page, and we know that that sheriff has them. And that was what we called running the gauntlet. Let's run the gauntlet. Right. We would go through, driving 10 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, but the minute you got out of his sight, you better hit it down, because as soon as he take care of those three blacks, you're going to, you're going to be next. The rules of Jim Crow could be fickle. Sometimes the color line was strictly enforced, sometimes it wasn't. For example, it was not uncommon for white men to have sex with black women. While some of these relationships were consensual, many were not. Historian Raymond Gavins is a director of the Oral History Project at Duke University, the source for many of the recordings in this program. In some of the stories, there, there are references to uh, women who were involved in uh, domestic work and who were exploited or, in fact, in other instances, women who were being kept in the black community by white men. If he had a big house, he had a small house, and this house was for his black mistress. And one man had another young girl, she was 13 years old, and she came out to wash dishes for his wife. When his wife knew anything, she was pregnant, and she's having babies brother after another, and she stayed there and took it. Now, I wouldn't have taken that, just like Pinkett. His mother had 10 children. Did he tell you about it? Okay, my name is Otis Pinkert. Sure, I had a white father. He was very nice to us, too. All of us. 10 children? 10 children. Mm-hmm. 10 children. But your, your mother and your father weren't married? No. Mm-mm. He was married to, to, you know, to his wife. They lived on the next road across the... His sons, his older sons, used to bring the food, you know, to my house bags and whatnot just loaded. That was our food every, you know, for years. Is that unusual? Yes. There would have been such good relations? Mm -hmm. That's unusual. Very unusual. 
Some blacks who had white parentage were so light-skinned they could pass themselves off as white people when necessary. Maurice Lucas. During the Depression, Daddy Will and, and Mama bought most of the grocery for the people in this community. They could pass away, and, 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 and Grandpa and Granddad and, and Grandma used to go to Cleveland and buy all the groceries for folks in this town. But I, I know they used to go to town and buy uh, wagon loads of food for the folks in this little community. African Americans in the South devised countless ways to shield themselves and their families from the predatory and humiliating customs of Jim Crow. Wilhelmina Baldwin of Tuskegee remembers how her father tried to protect the family by keeping the children away from segregated places. Well, there were just certain things that we did not do. For instance, going to wherever we went out of town, they took us. We never had to go to the bus station for anything. Until I got to be 10 years old, I, they didn't take me to buy shoes. They bought my shoes. And if they didn't fit, they would take them back and get another size. They bought the clothes for, for all of us like that. So we, we didn't get into the stores to, to have to deal with the clerks and whatnot. Rather than sequestering their children from Jim Crow, some families taught survival lessons early. Samora Morton Newsom. I guess that was the one thing my father did say. He used to always say, you have to be very careful, you know, where you go, what you do, because anytime something goes wrong, and if you're there, whether you're guilty or not, you're guilty by association. Blacks needed a way to shield themselves as much as possible from the capricious hostility of Jim Crow. They created something of a parallel country within America, what the scholar W.E.B. Du Bois called living behind the veil from whites. Historians Leon Litwack and Darlene Clark-Hine. Well, what blacks did essentially was to draw inward, to construct in their own communities a, a separate world. The institutions that sustained them were the churches, were the schools, were the social clubs, were the fraternal organizations, the sororities, um, and their culture, their music, whether the blues, spirituals, storytelling, humor, or what have you. Uh, and within very rigidly prescribed boundaries, uh, they improvised strategies for dealing with whites. Most try to enjoy the, the personal and family experiences that, that life has to offer. All of this was done very often without white Southerners being aware of it. One strategy blacks used was to conceal their real thoughts and feelings from whites. It was a tactic passed down from slavery times when black slaves veiled their ideas and actions to avoid getting in trouble with the slave owner. Georgia Sutton of New Bern, North Carolina. My mother told me nobody ever knows what goes through your head. She, <laughs> and she used to say, that lady that I work for is foolish enough to believe that I really like her. She said, I'm not thinking about her one way or the other. Just pay me what she owes me. And I learned, too, that I could smile on the outside. On the other hand, Olivia Cherry of Chesapeake, Virginia, frowned when white employers couldn't be bothered to remember her name. It was common for whites to call black people generic names like uncle or auntie or Jim or Susie. And she would call me, I'd be upstairs cleaning the bathroom, and she said, Susie, they love to call me Susie. Susie, and so I didn't answer. I, and I was a spunky kid then. I was like 13 or 14, and I didn't answer. 
and finally she come to the steps and said, uh, Olivia, you hear me calling you? I said, now I hear you. Now you said Olivia. That's my name. And then there was this white man and his girlfriend that had a raspberry farm. Here goes my name again. The man said, hey, Susie, Susie, you missed some on your row. Well, I knew he was talking to me because this was my row, but I just kept on working. And he said, Susie, don't you hear me talking to you? I said, I told you before, my name is Olivia. Olivia, can you say that? So one day we went through this name again and he said, get the H off of my property. I don't want you working for me. Starting in the 1890s, hundreds of thousands of African Americans began to resist Jim Crow by getting out of the South altogether. It was called the Great Migration. Most moved north after World War I, when the South was particularly violent. Price Davis of Charlotte, North Carolina, headed north to Opportunity as soon as he finished high school, even though his parents wanted him to go to a local black school called Smith University. I did not want, and I gotta repeat this, I did not want to be the most educated elevator operator down here in the South. You used to have to operate them by hand. And all the boys that I knew that had graduated from out here at Smith, they were either operating an elevator operator or whatnot. I knew that I was going to leave and go to New York, and, and I said, I'll go to New York and get me a job in the union, and I'll make me some money. And, 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 and everything changed, and the whole atmosphere changed. I got there at Washington, D.C., changed buses, and a black woman come up, and she told me, she said, Ain't, this is good now, son, you can sit wherever you want to sit on the bus. I said, I can't. She said, yeah. She said, you get your seat. I did not move to the front, but I did not sit in the back. I moved middle ways. When I got to New York, got a cab and went to Harlem, I looked around. I saw a black policeman directing traffic. I said, oh, my God, this is the problem. <laughs> Many blacks who moved north found something short of the promised land. In New York and many other cities, blacks were still unwelcome in some clubs, restaurants, and neighborhoods. Jim Crow in the north wasn't law, but it was still custom. Blacks who stayed in the south grew increasingly restless with Jim Crow and increasingly ready to speak out. Lillian Smith of Wilmington, North Carolina, worked as a domestic for a white family. The little boy, he had heard somebody say nigger. He was about six years old, and so when I was babysitting with him one night, he said, you're a nigger, aren't you? I said, I beg your pardon? What did you say, child? He said, I said, you are a nigger, aren't you? So I sat him down, and I said, listen, let me tell you something. I said, I'm sure you heard this from an adult. Did you not? He said, yes. I heard my parents say it, and I heard others say it. I said, but I want to tell you something. The word nigger really refers to an act. Anybody can be a nigger if they commit a niggardly act. My name is Lillian, and there's nowhere on my birth certificate to say I'm a nigger. It does say I'm a nigger, but that's a white man's term. That's not a term my family invented, and it wasn't one God invented. And uh, they apologized, and so I stopped working for them. And so I told them, I said, I said, the atmosphere here has been tainted, and I said, I don't no longer want to work for you anymore, so.
After World War I, blacks across the country got bolder about demanding the rights of dignity and citizenship, but it was still potentially lethal to do so in the South. For example, Southern whites used lynching and mob violence to shut down voter registration campaigns. Then came World War II. More than a million blacks served, and they came home hungry for justice. Historian Darlene Clark Hine. World War II looms as perhaps the most important moment in the 20th century in the whole struggle bringing down Jim Crow. If they could die for freedom abroad, they could die for freedom at home. And when they came home, hundreds of thousands of black men and women were determined that Jim Crow's days were numbered. Their hope was in Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He came in with a program helping those who were farthest down the ladder. And that gave African Americans hope. That gave them the opportunity to realize that things can be better. This is a chance for us to thrust forward. And that is the reason why we decided after the war was over that we will fight for civil rights and for the right to vote. Amelia Robinson. In Columbia, Tennessee, the fight began just a few months after World War II ended. It was 1946, a mild February day in the heart of Jim Crow country. A 37-year-old black woman named Gladys Stevenson stopped at an appliance store here on Columbia's main square to pick up her radio, which was being fixed. Her 19-year-old son James was with her. He was just back from serving in World War II. Gladys and the appliance store clerk got into an argument about the cost of the repairs. James intervened. He said, what you stop back here for, boy? They get your teeth knocked out of you if that's what it takes. I kept walking. When I got to the door, he hit me in the back of the head. I turned around and grabbed him, snatched him outside the door and hit him three times. Bam, bam, bam. Turned loose, he fell through the window. It was bad luck for the clerk that James Stevenson was a Navy boxing champ. It was bad luck for the Stevensons that the clerk was the brother of a local cop. Whites started gathering in the square at the news that a black man had beaten a white man. At that time, you, you, you did something that you shouldn't do if you're black, they would hang you. Edward Kimes was in the middle of events that day. We got wind that uh, the whites were going to come and get him. So the bird got around. If you got guns, come down. We just have to have a showdown. Got tired of being kicked around. More than 100 men gathered in the black part of town, which whites like Bernard Stoffel called Mink Slide. I was a policeman back in 46. They got shooting down there in the slide on East 8th Street. And they shot out all the street lights. It done got dark in. And we said, well, we'd better go down there and talk to them boys. And they were shooting right up that sidewalk. And they got all four of us. The police officers were shot, but they all recovered. James Stevenson slipped away to a northbound train. Tennessee State Patrolmen stormed the black neighborhood the next morning, arresting people and destroying black businesses. The news made national headlines. Black veterans in the South were fighting back against Jim Crow. Can't you hear that train whistle blow? Can't you hear that train whistle blow? Can't you hear that train whistle blow? Lord, I wish that train wasn't Jim Crow. One returning black serviceman met Jim Crow at the train station. 
Navy vet Otis Pinkert earned three promotions in the war, but on the train ride home, he was forced to sit in the Jim Crow car. He was furious. When he got to Tuskegee, Otis Pinkert turned that anger into action. By himself, he started a protest at a local store that sold primarily to black people, but wouldn't employ any. I walked the picket line by myself. I did it for about two weeks, and, and it closed it up. Closed Big Bear up, that was the name of the business, Big Bear. <laughs> so uh, two guys from Montgomery came up. They said, Mr. Pinkett, what can we do to, him to, to stop this situation? I said, all I want is uh, one black man in that business. That's all I want. So they said, well, okay, Mr. Pinker said, we'll go to Montgomery and talk with the boss and we'll be back tomorrow. I said, okay. So when they came back, I, you know, I thought about this. I said, shoot, we, I don't want no assistant manager. I said, I want a manager. So when they came back, they said, okay, Mr. Pinker said, we're ready. They said, the finest one, we'll hire him. I said, no, I'm not ready. I said, uh, I want a black manager. <laughs> they said, what? I said, so we got to go to Montgomery again and talk with the balls. See, I said, okay. So they went to Montgomery again, and they came back, and they said, okay, find us one, we are hired. One victory by one man in one town. Year by year, African Americans took on segregation. They fought Jim Crow laws in the state and federal courts. They resisted in public theaters and on buses. And by the 1960s, they took their protest to the streets. The Civil Rights Movement was at full strength, and Jim Crow was collapsing. The Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act of the mid-1960s marked the end of the era. It had taken 80 years to bring Jim Crow down. For American Radio Works, I'm Stephen Smith. You're listening to Remembering Jim Crow, a special report from American Radio Works, the national documentary unit of American public media. I'm Deborah Amos. Coming up... How whites in one Louisiana town remember segregation. He wouldn't have dreamed of shaking hands. My father or me would not have dreamed of shaking hands with a black person. I think they were happier than the white people because nothing worried them. Remembering Jim Crow is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. To learn more about the Jim Crow era and see photographs from the period, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll also find information on ordering the book and CD set from the Public Radio Music Source, where your purchases help support public radio. That's on the web at AmericanRadioWorks.org. American Radio Works is the national documentary unit of American public media. This is Remembering Jim Crow, a special report from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. By the early 20th century, every state in the South had laws in place to segregate and restrict the lives of blacks. Alabama, it shall be unlawful for a Negro and white person to play together or in company with each other at any game of pool or billiards. Georgia, no colored barber shall serve as a barber to white women or girls. Florida, the schools for white children Georgia, and the schools shall be for unlawful for any amateur white baseball School textbooks shall not be interchangeable between the white and colored stations in this state operated by any shall be illegal hereby forever. Shall be unlawful and void. Shall be guilty of a misdemeanor. Illegal hereby forever prohibited.
In the bayous of South Louisiana, Jim Crow was rooted in sugarcane fields and rice farms. A plantation aristocracy ruled there until the 1960s. Blacks in the region recall harsh times. As for the whites, anthropologist Kate Ellis spent a year in Iberia Parish and found that they remember the Jim Crow past in a very different way. Most of the older whites I spoke to remember growing up in a culture where there was simply no question. Blacks were inferior and treated as such. Others remember segregation as a more benign arrangement. All the black people who lived in a small town like this, they knew, everybody knew everybody else. Right. Except we didn't know the colored people that well. <laughs> I think they all knew the white people. Really? And they looked up to the white people, I tell you. They did. Because they knew that's where their bread was buttered. You know, the white people helped them, gave them work and everything. This tape is with Mary Laveau. She asked me not to use her real name. Mary's lived her entire 91 years in Iberia Parish and belongs to one of the old plantation families. She doesn't remember blacks resenting the rules of Jim Crow. For example, she says blacks chose to sit in the back of the bus. And it was just part of their life. They understood that it looks like. I don't think that the white people just were cruel to them and made them do that. Yeah. But they just felt that that was part of them. So it wasn't something that, that white people were doing to... The white people, I think, were good to them. Mary was raised by a black nanny and surrounded by black tenants on her family's plantation. She says the black people who worked for her family were poor but happy. And they had a little church back there and they would sing the most beautiful gospel music, sing, you know. Oh, they yeah. had beautiful voices, some of them they'd sing. And sometimes we'd go there at night and park about a block away just to listen. They just had that rhythm. So it was kind of joyous, the music. Oh yeah, oh, they'd, they'd uh, play the music and dance. And, mm -hmm. and their, their way of life, I think they were happier than the white people because nothing <laughs> worried them, you know. Some white people, they were worried of sometimes about losing their land or trying to make things go, you know, they were the yeah. leaders. But the black people, nothing bothered them. New Iberia lies deep in South Louisiana's Bayou Country where the night is filled with sounds from the swamps. It's a small town, just 35,000 people. About a third of them are black. This part of the state is called the Sugar Bowl because sugar cane is the primary crop. On the main street, you can still find some of the antebellum homes that belong to the plantation gentry, complete with white columns and towering oaks. Some of the homes belong to the great-grandchildren of the plantation owners. Well, my name is Barra, Leonard Barra, Jr and uh, my connection with New Iberia is I was born here in 1917 on East Main Street that was very segregated without a doubt. Uh, from the time I grew up, they had white folks and black folks, and uh, basically uh, black folks worked for the white folks. Uh, they sort of lived in their part of town, and, and we lived in our part of town. And, and why was it that way? It, it's, I guess if you didn't grow up here, it would be difficult really to understand that it was two separate worlds, you know. You just didn't become part of their world. You didn't go into their houses. They worked in your house, but uh, it was just the way it was. It had always been that way. 
Leonard Barrow is a retired fighter pilot who returned to Nigeria after a long military career. He comes from a planter family that always had close contact with blacks, first as slave owners, then as employers, always as superiors. God, there was a fellow who worked for my father for a number of years in a rice field. We ran into each other one day, and boy, he came and threw his arms around me. You know, it. Uh... Now, this is another funny thing. You wouldn't have dreamed of shaking hands back in those days. The black man that you ran into or your father? My father or me would not have dreamed of shaking hands with a black person. Some whites that I talk to say blacks were never treated poorly during Jim Crow. They were always treated well. They had their place and we had ours, but they were always treated well. I'm wondering how you see that. If well, <laughs> being treated well, I guess, has a pretty broad spectrum of... Uh, the blacks definitely lived at a much lower uh, standard, much lower. Many of the houses didn't have uh, running water. Many of the houses didn't have electricity. Uh, heat was rudimentary. Of course, nobody had air conditioning. Do you remember any whites openly questioning the way things were? Certainly not. <laughs> oh, heavens no. Why? Why would they have questioned it? I mean, this is the way it was. You grew up, you know, kind of like I'm a Catholic because my parents were Catholics. I never questioned why. That's the way it was. What about blacks? Do you remember blacks ever... Uh... Raising the question? Yes. No. No. They knew their place. We're in the New Iberia Public Library, and um, we're looking at a 1940 city directory um, from New Iberia. So it goes by street, and it lists... Um, every resident as well as every business, and by every resident who is colored or black, and also by every black-owned business, there's a little C denoting their race, colored. And not surprisingly, when you look at the people whose name have a little C in front of them, many of them are maids or laborers, um, a few teachers. There's a cook, seamstress, a brick mason. Again, cook, cook. Whites sometimes had close relationships with blacks who worked for their families. Henry Dotrieve is also from the planter aristocracy. As a boy, Henry says he learned one of his sharpest lessons about the color line in his family's kitchen. We had a handyman, chauffeur, aide-de-camp, whatever, who worked for my father. And he often sat in the kitchen waiting his orders, and I loved him to death. He taught me how to ride a bicycle. He taught me how to shoot a gun. And so I ran in the kitchen at age seven. I jumped in his lap, and I kissed him on the mouth. Well, he sat there, and then he tried to explain to me that I couldn't do this. He tried to say, you can't kiss black folks. It just puzzled me. Did you ever ask your parents? about that? My parents, uh, when I, I was 16, I went off to Tulane to college. And the world became much, much uh, larger. 
And I came back and I had the temerity to tell my grandfather that it was possible for a black person to be as smart as a white person. Now that was also crossing the line. Uh, he knew that they were inferior, he knew that they were servants, he knew that they were ignorant and dirty and diseased and everything. He was not happy. Henry Dotrieve is a tall, silver-haired man with a genteel, patrician manner. In the 1960s, he used his position as a prominent New Iberia lawyer to try to get a black school principal in the local Kiwanis Club. He tried to bring blacks and whites together in the Catholic Church. But Henry makes it clear. He never crossed the color line very far. I don't want to sound as though I were something really good because I recognize this and perhaps cared a little bit more, but it was only a little bit more. When some whites look back on the Jim Crow period, they often describe blacks as apathetic, as not being interested in furthering themselves or getting a better education. It, it is an attitude that the whites have that the black is inferior. I'm not at all sure that they're wrong. Today, even, I'm not at all sure. In fact, I, I, I tend in that direction to think it because I've watched it now with interest for so many years. Henry says that a lifetime of observing blacks as legal clients and employees has convinced him that he was naive at 16 to think black people could be as smart as whites. As Henry sees it, blacks are inherently less intelligent and less motivated than whites. This is precisely the same view of African Americans that his parents' generation used to justify Jim Crow. I interviewed nearly 50 older white people in the parish. Most of them think like Henry Dotrieve and Leonard Barrow. They recognize the injustice of Jim Crow, but feel no particular remorse. It's just the way it was, they say. On the other hand, Dion and Smitty Landry say they do regret being so oblivious to the hardship blacks faced. I think that when we were growing up, we did have the attitude that uh, they're happy, they're getting along, and uh, you know, uh, why should we care about them or, or, or sense the injustice and uh, unfairness? No one ever ran over with a casserole. My regret is the thought that when they went home at night after they worked for Mueller, I didn't, I didn't care if they had heat. I didn't care if they had food. That was not at all on my mind. We didn't Did think they about have that. No. Virtually all older whites I spoke to agree that Jim Crow is dead and gone. Racism may not have vanished, they say, but it no longer holds blacks down. The Landrys add that people who call attention to past discrimination are just prolonging the problem. I draw the line in the belief that we should not look at the past and create a sense of paranoia over what has happened. I, I think that the blacks, I think that we should, uh, you know, put that behind us and then say, okay, you are what you make of yourself now. You're given, yeah. We're giving okay. you all the opportunities you can have. Do not belabor the question of what happened in the past and how bad it is, and uh, we should give you things. I think that is a psychologically defeating uh, attitude. Uh, it will hold that whole race black if you keep back. And you it didn't happen to them, actually. It happened to their uh, ancestors. You need retribution because yeah. of all of this. Well, I don't think that that's, that's healthy. The Landrys admonish blacks not to dwell on the past, yet many white Southerners dwell on their past, especially their Confederate ancestry. Some are nostalgic about family fortunes lost during the Civil War. Leonard Barrow, for one, says he never got a chance to enjoy the comforts of being from the plantation gentry. I didn't inherit enough to buy my wife's Oldsmobile. 
when my folks finally died. But my grandparents' grandparents had three plantations over on the Mississippi River. I don't know how many slaves they had. It's been awful nice, you know, you to go hunting. Boy, clean those ducks, you know, skin that deer, uh, shine my shoes. Uh, I believe I could have gone for that. Yeah, I, I think you could have too. During my year in Iberia Parish, I also spoke to a lot of older African Americans about Jim Crow. One man often wept as he recalled the days when white people called him boy, even though he was a grown man. Memories of Jim Crow are sharp as ever among older blacks. In fact, some don't see Jim Crow as dead at all. They told me that many whites in Iberia Parish still view blacks as inferior, and that modern day racism is a direct legacy of Jim Crow. For many of the whites I talked to, that legacy doesn't exist. They say Jim Crow ended 40 years ago and is better off forgotten. Kate Ellis is an anthropologist from Boston. She's completing a book on how blacks and whites recollect the Jim Crow years in South Louisiana. Remembering Jim Crow was written and produced by Stephen Smith. Coordinating producer, Sasha Eslanian. Project directors, Nancy Fushin and Matt Weiland. Production support from Stephanie Curtis, Rachel Miller, Seth Lind, and Tina Tennyson. Original music by Bob Ekstrand. The editor was Deborah George. The executive producer for American Radio Works is Bill Busenberg. I'm Deborah Amos. Remembering Jim Crow is based in part on the oral history project Behind the Veil, documenting African-American life in the Jim Crow South. Additional recordings by American Radio Works. Behind the Veil is a project of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Directors of Behind the Veil are Duke University historians William Chafe, Raymond Gavins, and Robert Korstad. Research assistance for this program was provided by Keisha Roberts, Paul Ortiz, and Iris Tillman Hill. Consultants to the radio project included Leon Litwack, Darlene Clark-Hine, Kenneth Warren, and Kate Ellis. Funding for Remembering Jim Crow was provided in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. To learn more about segregation in America and to tell your story about life during the Jim Crow era, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. On the website, you'll find information on ordering a tape copy of this program. This documentary is also available in a book and a CD set entitled Remembering Jim Crow, published by the New Press. You can find a link from our website to the Public Radio Music Source, where your purchases help support public radio. American Radio Works is the national documentary unit of American public media. American Public Media.